0: I'm Andre Longley, and my guest this week on the Hammond High podcast is David Stark. David, founder of Songlink International, has just released a memoir, It's All Too Much, Adventures of a Teenage Beatles Fan in the Sixties and Beyond. In it, he tells the tales of remarkable encounters with John, Paul, George and Ringo, from gatecrashing the Yellow Submarine film premiere to being inducted as a companion of Lipper by Sir Paul himself. David Stark, thank you very much for joining us on the Hammond High podcast. How are you keeping today?
1: Very well, thank you. Nice to be here.
0: And you've joined us because you've got a new book out, um, which is um, all about, well, throughout the years, your encounters with the Beatles and various individual Beatles. Um, Obviously, you've been a lifelong fan and lifelong involved in the Beatles to some degree and and the heritage around them. Yes, yes. Let's, uh, let's go briefly from the start without going through the whole book. What, what was the first Beatles thing that you heard that caught your attention?
1: Well, the first time I ever heard them, I was 10 years old and we lived in Stanmore at the time. And uh, I heard Please Please Me on the radio. And it just like it just riveted me. It was just like a new sound. I didn't know who the, who the Beatles were. Uh, but it was just fantastic sound I, and I just thought well it was already going up the charts and uh, you know they got to uh, well number one or two with, with that one and I was just hooked, hooked for life as I say and uh, from then on I started Beatles scrapbooks which is back, back in 1963 you know I was I was really uh, mad keen on them and follow them from then on. And yeah, uh, yeah and it has been a literally from then on what's the latest book called it's, it's called it's all too much uh, adventures of a teenage Beatles fan in the 60s and beyond because it goes much further than the 60s in fact and uh, yeah
0: I, I've, I've read the the um the first 50 or 60 pages so i've got up to sergeant pepper's and oh, in those four or five years you've there's already quite a few tales and stories of encounters what was your fl- first close encounter with a beetle
1: well the actual first close encounter was uh just by abbey road studios or emi studios as it was back in uh, uh easter holidays of 1966 when i cycled up from stanmore to see my pal who lived just a few uh streets, were well not streets, he lived along Abbey Road on End Road and he was always telling me he'd seen he'd seen the Beatles arriving at the studio and we were just 13 years old at the time so I was caught, so dead jealous of him and I uh, thought I must I must go up and uh, you know see what's going on for myself so for some reason I cycled all the way from Stanmore to St John's Wood which is quite a distance for a 13 year old but I had my bike and we went down there. I parked the bike up against one of the studio gates. Um, and there's loads of girls and fans waiting for for them to arrive or someone to arrive. So we're just like we're waiting with the rest. And all of a sudden, this uh, great big Rolls Royce Phantom 5 limo comes up the street. And uh, not only could we see it, but we could hear it because there was a a very kind of familiar voice with a Liverpool accent doing a kind of a gobbledygook uh, commentary as they were driving along, because he had a speaker rigged up inside the, the bonnet or the, the wheel arches. So he's talking all this nonsense, which I can't remember. But as, as the car got to the studios, I suddenly hear John Lennon say to me, and get that bloody bike out the way. <laughs> so that was it. <laughs> that was my first encounter with, with any Beatles, and I had to get, move the bike, and the car went in the car park, and out he jumped. <laughs> and, and that
0: sounds—it sounds like a very John Lennon of the mid-sixties um, yeah. encounter. It sounds yeah. sounds in character. I mean, maybe let's let's um, let's stick with John for for a little bit. Obviously, John Lennon up to the the tragedy of his death in yeah. um, in nineteen eighty went through quite a few changes did you did you you must have observed closely but were there encounters and situations where you saw the changing aspects of of John Lennon's life
1: oh well very much so I mean there was a big change from 1966 when they finished touring and their last UK gig was at the Empire Pool Wembley Arena as it is until 1968 which was really my next encounters with them when you know uh, they'd all grown their hair. They'd been through Sergeant Pepper then, but John had let his hair grow. He'd met Yoko. You know, they were now a hippy-dippy couple. And, like, it, it was a big change in just two years. And, uh, but, you know, he still, he, he looked great. And uh, that was the occasion that, uh, well, I saw them all when I, I gate gatecrashed the, the Yellow Submarine film premiere in July 68, which is all in the book. I, I was going to say it's a it's a great tale in the book. We won't tell the whole thing here, but
0: it was a combination of luck, blagging, and a kindly rolling stone.
1: Yeah, quite. Thanks to a, a help, the help of one of the stones, you know, and uh, it, it it ended up with me sitting in Mick Jagger's seat uh, because he was away in, in New York with Marianne Faithfull. So I, I got really lucky, and uh, you know, it was just an incredible evening, and I was just 15 years old, you know, I might have known something was gonna happen cause I had a nice Lord John suit on. So I guess I was prepared for anything really. Uh, but that night was quite incredible. And um, yeah, I was literally sitting behind Paul with John to my right. So I could see him, you know, uh, his profile and I could, I could only see the back of Paul's head, but John I had clear vision of and it was <laughs> hard to take my eyes off him being so close
0: yeah and it was the yellow submarine premiere the, the cartoon do you know if they'd seen it before or were you there um, one, the first time with them
1: i'm not sure i think they had seen i think they had seen uh, you know uh, a version of it but this was the full final version in glorious technicolor on the big screen so it was a an amazing experience and you know and they had new songs in the film so we're all hearing those hearing them for the first time. And like, the whole thing was magical. It's a real uh, milestone landmark of the sixties, that film, the the graphics, uh, you know, the humor, uh, the songs, everything. And, you know, it was just, uh, it's for kids of all ages still. Basically. I've got to admit, it was it was one of my ins to the Beatles because we I think we had a
0: videotape at home when I was growing up in the eighties,
1: mm. and I remember
0: putting it on a lot. And so those songs are more familiar to me than most other Beatles songs because they. they oh, that's
1: it. interesting. And it's it's a beautiful film
0: as well, isn't it? The graphics, the
1: animation, yeah. is, is wonderful in it. It is. I love it. I've mentioned that in the book, the Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds sequence. Just beautiful graphics and kind of a lot of it's very ahead of its time, I would say. And just, you know, it stands up today.
0: Yeah, no, uh, absolutely. And for me, Nowhere Man, I think it's an underrated song. That's a lovely
1: sequence. And Ellen Rigby is beautiful. That's a beautiful sequence. Yeah, it's brilliant. With all the Liverpool uh, images and the football teams and uh, it's fantastic. I, I love it. And so, obviously, from there, it wasn't too many years
0: until um, they, they, they split up. And how, how did you feel about John Lennon's direction into solo material?
1: Well, I absolutely loved it. I mean, um, you know, he, uh, he he had his first proper solo album out in um, 1970, but he'd done a, a f- you know two or three or more weird albums with Yoko which, you know, I really, A, I couldn't afford to buy them, and B, they were just so weird uh, that, you know, well, this is in the book that one of the music papers asked the question, this was in 1969, why would you want to, why would anyone want to buy this weird album by John and Yoko called Life with the Lions, which included, um, uh, uh, recordings of of Yoko during her miscarriage or being in It's very weird stuff and that's mm. what they were into well I wrote straight straight off in answer to the question uh, and I said it was the most cosmic album I'd ever heard you know best thing since sliced bread and my letter was published the next week and I won an LP token for it <laughs> and, which was quite amazing not only that I came home from school the next day there's a letter waiting for me and oh, I was 16 by then, a black, scrawly handwriting. And it was from John and Yoko to thank me. It was a postcard of them inside, signed. I mean, he'd <laughs> read my letter, sent it off the same day of, of publication. You can't you can't do better than that. And uh, incredible. No, that's
0: fantastic. And, it, and an interesting insight to the fact that although they were kind of on the avant-garde and probably happy to be doing their own thing, they, they did have an eye on what the reaction was.
1: Oh, uh, totally. I mean, he was always very aware of record sales back in those days, and like he was doing as much promotion as he could, even though no, really, nobody bought it. And uh, and then the funny thing was, I I wrote the letter. I'd never even heard the album, uh, so I just you know I got lucky there. And then I I met them a few months later, at another film called The Magic Christian with Ringo and Peter Sellers, it had its premiere at the Odeon Kensington. Went along to that on my own, and uh, yeah, it's a long story. But I got in, and who's standing in the foyer? John and Yoko, and they're doing a protest at the time. Uh, but I went up to them and had a had a few words, and I said, "I want to thank you for the the letter you sent me earlier this year about you know my letter being published about uh, your album." And I, he remember he remembered it, so I said, "I've got to admit to you, I never heard the album." <laughs> And I still haven't. And they thought that was hilarious.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I bet they loved it. Yeah. That's brilliant. Um, Did you? And were there other encounters um,
1: before his death? Uh, Yeah, just a few. Well, 68 was quite a big year for me. I met Tim, I saw him, I think, three times that year at the Yellow Submarine. At the uh, Maribor, outside Maribor Magistrates Court, when they got busted uh, <laughs> for dope in October '69, and I just went along, you know, to to see them going in and out of court, which happened to be on a Saturday, so so there was no school that day, and um, and then I got I got into a, a couple of photos, photos which have been used in quite a few books. So there I am standing right behind John and Yoko, and. Uh, uh, their PA, Neil Aspinall, who became head of Apple eventually, and so that, that and then the third time was in December 68 uh, at the Rolling Stones Rock and Roll Circus, an amazing event which was filmed with the Stones, uh, the, the Who, uh, Marianne Faithful, all sorts of people, and a supergroup including John Lennon, Eric Clapton, Mick Jag, not Mick Jagger, Keith Richards, and Mitch Mitchell of the Jimi Hendrix Experience. So, you know, John and Yoko were just there and hanging around. I, I was there all day and like uh, didn't actually speak to them, but I went past went past them at one point and kind of smiled. But uh, you know, I was feeling a bit nervous. But I was, you know, there again. I was only uh, sixteen at the time. <laughs> The, I mean, the, the the book is obviously focused around the
0: Beatles, but it does paint a, a lovely picture of um, the scene at the time. And you say the Who was your your other favourite band, um, but also yes, there's the a very touching few ta- few pages about Jimi Hendrix and seeing yeah. him live, and obviously his you know the short time
1: before he died. Well, that's right. And I was a huge fan of his, and the fact that you know his his gig supporting the Who at the Old Savoy Theatre so was my first major gig even though I'd seen the Beatles once at Hammersmith Odeon uh, a couple of years earlier but uh, this was my the Savile was my first gig going with friends and not parents and uh, and the fact was on that night that all the Beatles were there as well not that I saw them because I was downstairs, they were upstairs and I didn't even realise at the time but uh, yeah, it was a historic night and uh, Hendrix you know, was a huge influence on me and, and still is, absolutely love him Ringo, you you
0: pick out the drumming on Rain in particular, I think it is, Um,
1: but
0: generally you play drums as well, don't you?
1: I'm a drummer and I've always been a huge fan of Ringo and I really get annoyed when people knock him and, you know, they reel out the old joke about him not even being the best drummer in the Beatles, which was a Jasper Carrot joke. It was never any of the Beatles who said that everyone gets it wrong. Probably
0: Jasper Carrot's most told joke. Yeah, probably is.
1: (laughs) But no, Ringo for me has always been an incredible drummer, absolutely precise and his fills are inventive. He's a perfect timekeeper, uh, you know, and he's admired by many drummers. So yeah, I've always been a big fan. And yeah, I was was lucky to meet him a few times as well. And one of the stories has a particular uh, hamstered edge to it, Mm. which uh, I don't know if you realize, which uh, was when I was still living in, uh, we were in Edgeworth at the time. And then I, on a Saturday, one Saturday night in 1970, I said to a pal of mine, uh, well, what should we do tonight? And he said, I don't know, I've just got my car, we should go somewhere. He'd bought a Ford Anglia, uh, his first car. So I said, okay, well, I read that Ringo lives in Hampstead and I know the name of the road, but I don't know which house it is. Why don't we go up and try and find him? So we did, we drove all the way up to uh, Spaniard's Road. He lived on Compton Avenue, right opposite Kenwood. So, uh, which was a, and that's a private road. So uh, it's a crazy story, but so found the, found the street, parked on Spaniard's, uh, didn't know which house was Ringo's. So we, uh, we rang the door on the first house on the left. Like we're dressed, we're dressed pretty scruffily, you know, no money and just mucking about on a Saturday. Who comes to the door but Lulu? <laughs> a huge surprise with her then husband, Maurice Gibb. They were married at the time, and he was wearing an apron. They were obviously cooking or something. And uh she says, How can I help you boys? <laughs> I said, oh, oh, we're going to Ringo's tonight, but we're not too sure which house it, which house it is. And he she said, oh, oh, you can't miss it. It's just right down at the end on the right. And uh, it's got a big double drive. And Morris said, yeah, give them our love, you know. And so thank you very much. But can you imagine any celebrity today telling any kids where another celebrity lived? It's unbelievable. So we no. walked down. This is in the book, of course. We walked down the street and we, um, uh, you know, the Ringo's house, double drive. Quite a few cars in the drive, so I thought, oh, there's something going on. But we still rang the bell. He came, he came to the door holding a pool cue, obviously in the middle of a snooker game or something. And he said, what can I do for you, lads? And I said, uh, well, we just wondering if you'd like to come out for a drink, <laughs> a couple of pints. And, you know, he, he looked quite amazed by this. And uh, he said, well, thank you very much. But uh, we've got friends in tonight. It's a bit difficult. Maybe another time. <laughs> As he's talking to me, I can see Eric Clapton walking in the hall behind him. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. So we said, okay, then, thank you very much. See you, bye-bye, close the door, and then we are just laughing our heads off. It was, <laughs> it, was it was, something a bit different to do on a Saturday night, that's for
0: sure. That is lovely. Okay. So did you go up, back up to Lulu and Morris's house and see if they wanted a
1: pint instead? That's, we <laughs> should have done. In fact, my other friend, who used to live in Hampstead said, uh, "Well, why didn't you tell Ringo? Well, we're coming to the party. Let us in." So, <laughs> anyway, uh,
0: oh, that's class. amazing. And did you come across him again over the years?
1: I've met him quite a few times, and uh, he's always been a nice guy. And and uh, I think the last time I saw him, he did a he did a kind of a press conference a couple of years ago for uh, against uh, against uh, uh, guns and against violence and I was it was a very small press conference and uh, a few of us at the Gibson guitar studio in Soho and I'm sitting there and I'm going to ask him a question and he looks at me and he goes I know you <laughs> and, uh, that's the quote I'm using on, on the back of the book and uh, <laughs> yeah so he's he's a he's a nice. they're all you know I've met them all they're all always always nice people and uh I think uh, George was most, the most easy to get along with. Was George oh, really? Harrison. Yeah, he was a very natural guy, very modest, always happy to talk. Um, and he's one of these guys, you could talk about anything to him and he he wouldn't mind really. So uh, um, and I uh, I met him a few times and I even introduced my mum to him on one occasion when uh, uh, mum, oh, there's another hamster connection because mum, after my parents divorced, and we lived in Finchley. After that, then Mum worked for a while at the, uh, you know, that uh, centre just just beyond Hampstead Tube Station. There's that kind of art art centre, art shop. Mum worked there for a, a while years ago, um, running a ceramic shop, and uh, so uh, that's that was a Hampstead connection. And then um, then she moved worked into town and worked for. Rediffusion, a TV rentals in Piccadilly, and one day she got a call from George Harrison's office to say that they needed to rent a TV for Ravi Shankar who was coming into town, and he needed a TV at his flat. So Mum organised that, and they said, "By the way, would you like two tickets to see his concert at the Albert Hall?" And Mum said, "Yes, we'd lo- I'd love to go and bring my son with me. Um, not that I'm a huge Indian music fan, but..." Uh, but George was introducing the concert and it was on stage to introduce Ravi. And then the concert started and a few minutes later, we hear a bit of shuffling behind us. George comes and sits directly behind us. And, uh, <laughs>
0: in,
1: in the interval, we had a little chat. I'd met him before that, just a few weeks earlier. So, uh, he kind of remembered me, but then I introduced him to Mum, and they, they got on fine. So, you know, the book's full of all these crazy stories, but, uh, he was a lovely fellow, really, really nice guy.
0: You seem to be a bit of a magnet for, although you put the effort in, you track them down. But then, once you're in the building, they seem to appear. But next to you, well, something like that.
1: <laughs> yeah, I guess so. It's just, as I say, it's all luck and chutzpah, as they say. <laughs> and uh, and it's you know, I was just being in the right place at the right time, and you know, being a kid with that kind of front to do that kind of thing, but. For me, I was such a big fan of them. It just seemed natural, and uh, you know, it's from them that you know I got my love of music and my love of playing drums and playing in bands and everything. So a huge influence. And then, you know, it went on through the years. And yeah, so I uh, obviously we lost John uh, in uh, nineteen eighty, but I I saw him and Yoko just before they left the UK to go to New York, which I saw them in July uh, 1971, just a few weeks before they left. And he was, they were signing books at Selfridges. It was called Yoko's book called Grapefruit, which was kind of her, her sayings. And it had been published a few years earlier and they were both there promoting it. I got it signed. And then I'm researching it for the book and I'm looking it up on Google. Lo and behold, I find a photo of myself at the book signing, just in the top right of the of the picture, and they're and they're right in the centre signing the books. So uh, yeah, it was just one of these things. And, uh, and yeah, some of some of the photos from the time obviously are great because yeah. they have the time. But
0: um, yeah, you, you've popped up a few times, haven't you? When you when you've looked through. Yeah, the
1: yeah. Uh, everyone calls me Zelig. So uh, <laughs> <or> <laughs> the Beatles Zelig, but you know being in the music business as well. I mean, I must admit, you know, I have got photos of a, a lot of people who have, you know, been my musical idols or heroes, but a lot of them are now friends, you know, which is great, you know. So uh, I kind of uh, I've always lived with that and uh, you know, I just I you no, know, I like to socialize and if anything's going on, I always like to to be part of it, but yeah, I'm very lucky that some some of the you know, great heroes like people like, uh, Noddy Holder, uh, uh, Susie Quattro, and, and others, you know, they've they become friends, which is nice. Yeah, no, that's lovely.
0: And, and you must have come across uh, Sir Paul many times over the
1: years now. Well, yes. Yeah. When we come to Paul, yeah, he's the Beatle I've, I've met most over the years, uh, particularly in the last 15 or so years, because I've been involved with his... Uh, uh, The Liverpool Institute for Performing Arts otherwise known as LIPA in Liverpool which is a really fantastic performing arts school uh, which uh, he's the patron of and he uh, when it's not uh, uh, suffering Covid um, every year he's at graduation day ceremony uh, every July and so am I because I'm I'm there to give out uh, the songwriting prizes every year with him so uh, that's my little job. And we we always have a chat um, in the green room before and after. And it's just great to meet him. But also in 2006, he made me a, a companion of Lipper, which is like an honorary degree. So I have to wear the the mortarboard on the gown and all that every year, which is, you know, as I never went to uni, that's 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 the nearest I'll, I'll ever come to it. And it's a real honor, especially as I had to make a speech in front of Paul and tell him a bit about myself. And afterwards he said, uh, oh, I didn't know you'd done all that. So
0: yeah. <laughs> that's brilliant. So it yeah. may may have taken 40 years, but you graduated from the University of the
1: Beatles. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs>
0: so I mean, when did when did you first speak to Paul?
1: Well, the first time was at the Yellow Submarine film premiere. That was the Paul. first time I actually met him, I think. Yeah, when one of the one of the new songs came up on the screen, and I was sitting behind him, and I just leant over to him. I said, "Oh, that's a really good one." And he goes, "Oh, thank you." You know, <laughs> as the film's going on. <laughs> Did you get lucky? Was it one of his, or was it? <laughs> oh, it was a John song. It was "Hey Bulldog," as it happens. But, uh, oh, right. <laughs> uh, but it yeah, yeah. But you know, it was. But he's always been a very friendly guy, and you know, I've been lucky to meet him on quite a few other occasions. And uh, you know, being uh, when he's in town, he lives in 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 uh, Cavendish Avenue in Saint John's Wood, the house he's had for. 44 years and um, you know i bumped into him he used to go to um, Rishu Cafe on, on St. John's Wood High Street and I used to see him there very occasionally because I used to take my dad there once <laughs> or twice a week <laughs> back in the day so Paul would be there yeah and um, so yeah it's just been not just the Beatles but they're, they were my main influence and I you know I've been in to many events and record launches. And uh, I've been, I'm also involved with with Blue Plaque, Blue Plaques, which have been put up honoring, uh, there was one for John put up in um, Montague Square where he lived uh, with Yoko. But there's also one on Baker Street uh, for John and George together, which I was kind of involved with as well. And then there was one um, for the Beatles put up last year at Three Savile Row, their Apple Mm -hmm. offices where they had the rooftop concert. And there was a small committee of four of us who uh, you'll read later in the book. We, uh, it's uh, inspired by a guy, a property agent called David Rosen, who to this day still works on Savile Row, actually sold the Apple building for the Beatles back in the day. He's a big fan, and he said I, he wanted to get a plaque put up because it had been tried before. No one ever achieved it, so uh, he called he called me in and a couple of, of other friends, and had to do a lot of legwork, uh, but got that got that organised, and it was uh, unveiled. We missed the actual anniversary, but it, uh, it went up in April last year, and we had a bit of a ceremony for that. Another plaque I was involved with which is right next door to the London Palladium was the the offices where Brian Epstein worked um, Mm. until his death and uh, there's a blue plaque up there for him which actually I I organised the whole thing from start to finish so that's quite, quite nice to do.
0: It's, it's funny when when you talk about the Beatles and when we're looking at doing a, a feature or a podcast about the Beatles. Yeah, it's not like other subjects because it's so ingrained in culture that listeners, I don't have to explain who they are to people. Exactly. Everybody sure. have their favourite songs or a song that means something.
1: Yes.
0: Uh, I mean, what what songs maybe would you suggest people listen to that
1: they might not have clocked before or properly paid attention to? Well, oh, that's a good question. Well, there's one I mentioned in the book. It's on um, it's on Rubber Soul, I think, and it's called The Word. And it's just a funky little song, which uh, I always loved. It was just not one of the best-known songs, but it's, it's just got, got a great feel about it. And uh, that's one example. Um, and then I guess uh, I love the B-side of All You Need Is Love is Maybe You're a Rich Man, which you might know, but that, that always conjures up the, the psychedelic 60s for me. Mm. And uh, you know, it's kind of got weird sounds in it, but it, it's, it, it's a great song and it's one of the ones I still like to play. And I guess also the title of the book, It's All Too Much, which comes from the other submarine, it's one of George's songs, not one of his most known numbers. And it's also pretty weird and mystical, uh, well, but it's a good one. It's uh, it's got some yeah, it's got great instrumentation on it, good lyrics, and uh, many people don't know it. So I'd recommend that. That's some
0: good tips. What's the one What's the one Beatles song that if you feel you need pepping up for
1: the day and some get up and go, what would you whack on loud? Oh, blimey. Uh... I suppose it would have to be Helter Skelter or something like that. Mm-hmm. Something really loud. And um the yeah. song that gets credited with inventing loud to certain, a certain yeah. extent. Yeah, <laughs> and, you know, but all their all their up tempo rockers are all great, but that that was probably their loudest. And uh and also uh yeah, John's uh revolution, the uh the B side of Hey June, which is also mm-hmm. one of my favourite songs of all time. What a great double single that was, you know, Mm. two completely different songs. But uh, Paul doing one of the greatest melodic pop songs of all time and John just doing a complete political thing, uh, an up-tempo version of Revolution. It's just great. And it's quite full on as well with a
0: great intro, isn't it? And it's a positive song, Revolution.
1: Yeah, that feedback guitar and everything or fuzz tone guitar, really great. And what's
0: the one song that, um, for a more contemplative moment, or uh, something that's a bit more nostalgic?
1: Well, I guess with John, it has to be In My Life, which is, you know, one of his greatest songs. And, you know, the lyrics are still, when you read them, still, or hear them, still very personal. You know, he was writing about him him and his life. And and the other one of his, of course, uh, Julia, written about his mother. So they're beautiful songs. And... People can't forget that you know John was just as capable of writing great ballads as Paul was. Um, maybe not as many, but he certainly did quite a few good ones. Paul amazes me actually. He's such a natural guy. He'll, he'll, he'll be able to talk with anybody um, whatever they're talking about, he'll join in, and he's always got an opinion. And he's, you know, he's he's his own man, and he knows exactly what he's saying. And uh, you know, and, and he he's quite remarkable, and he is the, the consummate PR guy, you know, of all time, really, in the music business, because you know he's a showman, and you know he he really it's on his he's got a new album coming out also in December which I'm hearing good reports about. And I, you can bet he'll be doing all the interviews, all the press and TV and everything for it. Because course, it's, it's titled as his third solo album, McCartney 3. There's a plug for you, Paul. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, Paul, if you're listening, you're welcome
0: on the Ham and I podcast to push it at the same time. Absolutely. Thank you to david for joining me if you enjoyed the podcast tell your friends hit subscribe and we're back again next week